Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. Today is a bit of a different episode, but one I'm incredibly excited. You're going to see really quickly why this one is close to my heart. Um, and it's about season three of Future Perfect. And I have Seagal Samuel here, one of my colleagues at Vox, to talk about it. Hey, Seagal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. Good to be with you. So I'm going to be honest. I, I love Future Perfect. I've loved every season of it. But, but, but season three is the one I've been really excited for. Season three is the one that's close to my heart. So, so, so tell me a bit about it. Well, we're basically spending the whole season talking about the meat we eat and how it affects us all. Actually, even if you don't eat meat, uh, it still affects you because it could breed the next pandemic. It could make all our antibiotics useless. It has effects on climate change, on human health. All of this in addition to its effects on the animals themselves. So this is something that um, I, there's like a part of me that was so thrilled when I saw you were doing it. And then a part of me that was so sad because I've had this piece I've wanted to do for for months about the connections between human and animal suffering, particularly in the pandemic. I mean, we're sitting here, like can't go outside, can't see our friends, can't see our family. And like the one thing nobody ever says is that this pandemic came because of the meat we eat. And then like, and maybe we should do something actually about that. But then worse, if you look at the CDC, they track pandemic threats. They mm-hmm. track the viral strains out there they think could become pandemics. And seven out of 10 of them, if I remember this correctly, are, are zoonotic and are, are driven by particularly like the, the animal-human like eating <laughs> interface. And then the whole, anti, the whole antibiotic resistance world, which is terrifying if you ever listen to anybody talk about it for 12 seconds and sounds exactly like all the people who used to tell us about pandemic viral mm-hmm. like respiratory threats also comes because we use, at least partially comes because we use, I think it's 70% of antibiotics in America are used on farms. Like it's a lot of human suffering we accept yeah, for our taste for meat. Exactly. I think that's something that a lot of us don't fully internalize. When we think about this whole conversation about eating animals, we tend to focus a lot on the animal welfare side of it. And I'm not saying that's not important, but even if you aren't super compelled by those arguments, you might be compelled by the argument that, hey, we we care about human health and we care about the environment and our planet and we don't want those to suffer. And yeah, as you said, like three quarters of emerging outbreaks look like they're zoonotic, right? The, the threats are mostly about spillovers from animal populations into human populations, And I think when the whole coronavirus pandemic started, everyone was really focused on saying, oh, it's wet markets in China. They're the problem, right? Like this, quote unquote, like foreign invasion kind of threat model. But actually, if you look at factory farms here in the U.S., they could really easily be breeding the next pandemic. And I think that's something we don't pay enough attention to. 
There was a UN report that just came out talking about pandemic threats. And if you look at their top five things, two of them have to do with animal agriculture, and particularly these factory farms, because you have so much pass through of um, viruses between animals. And every time a virus passes through, it mutates. The thing that like lodges in my gut and scares me. So I think I'm going to get this right from memory. H1N1 um, is a strain of flu that has a uh, 60% lethality rate. So coronavirus kills, looks like, let's call it 0.5%, a fatality rate somewhere in that range, um, maybe a little bit lower now as we've gotten better at treating it, and obviously very age-specific. Um, but but that's its overall fatality rate, somewhere in like the, the, the half a percentage point. H1N1, 60%. But the good news is doesn't spread mammal to mammal. Um, then some scientist decided to like figure this out, and he passed it through a ferret 10 times in some way, and managed to make it spread mammal to mammal. And like, there was a big outcry over this because he was doing a kind of research that like figures out how to make things more lethal to understand maybe how to counter them. And is that an ethical form of research? But putting aside like whether you should do that research, like that can just happen. That could just happen. Like we live in a world where it could just happen. Coronavirus is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Like that could just happen. And it scares the hell out of me. It's Kind of sounds crazy to say this, but we actually, in a sense, got lucky with the coronavirus that we could potentially be brewing a future pandemic that is really easily transmissible human to human and animal to human, and that has a higher mortality rate, right? So we're, you know, as as one of the experts we spoke to in the podcast season says, we're playing Russian roulette. Right. Like so far, we've gotten pretty lucky in that our factory farms haven't bred a pandemic that is extremely lethal to humans and extremely easily transmissible human to human. But that could easily happen a year, two years, 10 years down the line. And I think what we've definitely seen is if it did happen, we don't have some magic way to stop it. Like we are not well prepared for pandemics and easily. It's it's really it's really scary stuff. Um, I, I want to ask you one more question before we get to the episode here, which is. You can hear this and it's just like scoldy sort of don't eat meat. But the way I've come to look at it, and, and you've done a lot of work on, on individual change and how people sort of morally reason, the way I've come to look at it is that what this should motivate us to do is like accept that there's a big tension between our preferences here and our and the dangers they 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 pose. And we've even talked about climate change. Um and that what you should want to do is have a like a moonshot program to allow people to eat meat that is not dangerous. Like I'm a big believer in like the plant-based cell-based worlds. Like I think government should be pumping tens of hundreds of potentially billions of dollars over a, a decade or two to try to make it so people can have the meat they want without the climate impact, without the viral impact or, or, or infectious disease impact. And it seems like for this first time in human history, we are like on the cusp of being able to like have our meat and eat it too, and not have unbelievable levels of sentient animal suffering and not pose so much danger to us. So are you like, where are you on this? Are you optimistic? Do you think this is simply something we need to address through behavioral change? Like, where do you come down? Yeah. So I'm really glad you mentioned this because I want to emphasize that this, you know, this whole season of the Future Perfect podcast uh, isn't just diagnosing like these depressing problems. It's very much about what are the solutions that are on the table. And I am really optimistic about, you know, these sort of alternative meat technologies, whether it's plant-based meat, whether it's coming cell-based lab-grown meat. I do think that based on what we know from history of human behavior change, you really got to give people the technologies that will kind of allow them to 
so to speak, have their meat and eat it too. We actually have an episode coming later in the season about how, you know, you really see this with uh, feminism, for example. What allowed women to gain more equal rights? Yes, certainly it was in part people, feminists fighting for those changes in society, but also a lot of studies show it was the advent of new technologies like the washing machine that allowed a situation where society didn't need women anymore to be doing so much domestic labor, so kind of freed them up. In a similar way, if you have new technologies that makes it so that it's easier than ever before to have a delicious, meaty meal, but without having to actually kill any animals, like that just might be the thing that pushes us over the edge and makes it easier and more palatable or more digestible for us to give up eating all of this meat. So give me a a quick introduction to the episode we're about to hear. So we've been talking mostly about the human impacts of the meat we eat so far. This is actually the episode where we talk more about the animal welfare side of things. And it asks a really, really basic question. We love our pets. We love our dogs. We love our cats. We collectively spend billions of dollars every year pampering them, buying them fancy food and all of that. And yet we treat other animals like pigs, which are at least as intelligent as dogs, if not more so, really, really horribly. And we subject them to horrible conditions that we would never subject our puppies to. Why is that? I talked to a neuroscientist who studies animal intelligence, and we delve into those questions. All right. The episode is about to play here, but I do just want to say I've been listening to this season. Um, I cannot say more strongly than I am here. You should subscribe to Future Perfect wherever you are listening to your podcast. It's, this is an amazing important season that will make you sort of rethink things no matter where you are on the spectrum of this issue. It's it's This is big enough for the world we live in. We are currently living in a world reshaped by it that like, it, it's not something to turn your eyes away from. Um, and it's done beautifully in this season. So subscribe to Future Perfect. And here is um, season three, episode two, The Paradox on Our Plates. Hey, listeners, just a quick heads up before we start. We have some detailed descriptions of animal cruelty in this episode. Lori Marino is a neuroscientist who studies animal intelligence and animal welfare. She walked me through a troubling thought experiment. Picture a puppy and its mother. His mother, the dog is in a crate where she literally cannot turn around. She gets all kinds of sores on her skin because she's on this hard substrate. And all of her puppies are able to reach her just enough to nurse, but not enough for her to show them affection. The puppy, if he's a male, he is castrated without any painkillers or maybe his tail is cut off. And this dog would stay in that crate for his entire life. And we're not talking about a traveling crate that you put dogs in, you know, when you go on an airplane or travel somewhere. We're talking about an iron cage that the dog can only be in one position. This is a horrifying way to treat a dog. But how would you feel if I told you that this wasn't a dog at all? That's the thought experiment here. Lori was actually describing the life of a factory-farmed pig. So it was a pig in a crate 
and a piglet getting its tail cut off. I don't know about you, but at first that made me feel better. And then I started to wonder, why? Is it actually better to treat a pig this way than a dog? Did it just feel better because one animal lives on a farm and one is a pet? From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect. I'm Sigal Samuel. This season, we're looking at how the meat we eat affects us all. And today... Americans are giving their furry friends the royal treatment. The Humane Society claims it found a number of abuses, including female breeding pigs crammed inside crates so small they could barely move for virtually their entire lives. Total spending on pets hit a all-time high last year. More than $20 billion on food and an estimated $650 million on pet insurance. Pigs being thrown into dumpsters alive and piglets being mishandled by employees tossed into carts. Other expenses are for groomers, trainers, boarding, and pet sitters. All right, up next, how much do Americans spend on their pets' costumes? There's a paradox on our plates. Every year in the U.S. alone, we subject millions of pigs and cows and billions of chickens to conditions we would never accept for our pets. So how do we draw the lines between pets and food? And should we redraw those lines? As I started to think about this, I wondered, do we draw these lines based on animals' intelligence? Lori Marino has done a lot of work exploring that exact question, and she's looked at a wide range of animals. She started me off with an example that she felt made the answer very clear. Pigs. Pigs are intelligence, curious, bursting with personality. Lori knows this because she did a big roundup of all the studies on pig smarts. And she found a lot of porcine Einsteins. Pigs share a lot of the same capacities with primates. An example of that might be some studies that have been done showing that they understand a simple language where you put together actions and objects. Do you mean like, I want food? No, it would be something like, fetch the Frisbee. Go fetch a Frisbee, snort. You can find lots of videos of pigs fetching things on YouTube. Mudslinger, there's your toy. Will you go fetch that for me? That's amazing because it's just like a dog, right? Like we all say that to our dogs and... It's even more than that because you can then say fetch the ball and the frisbee and the ball could be there. They will pick the ball. But that's just one example. There are other examples of how pigs respond to each other in competitive situations that look very much like what happens when you put chimpanzees in a competitive situation. They try to outwit each other. They try to outwit each other? For instance, if you release two pigs into an open field where there's hiding places for food, they start to develop strategies to ensure that the other pig does not get there first by maybe going off to another place that they know there's no food and then running back to where there is food. And so all of these strategies and counter strategies look a lot like tactical deception that we see in chimpanzees. In order to do this, pigs need something called theory of mind. That means they have to understand that other animals also have brains and agendas. And then they have to know that their own actions can affect what other animals will do or think. 
Human children don't develop a full theory of mind until several years into their development. So you're telling me that a pig potentially has more complex cognitive ability than a three-year-old toddler. I tend to shy away from making those comparisons. So how does a pig compare to a small child? Fortunately, the BBC found scientists who were happy to make these kinds of comparisons. They brought three kids into a studio, a one-and-a-half-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-year-old. They also brought a performing pig, Nellie. And they had the kids and the pig all do a series of tasks. Nellie has no problem scoring a goal. But all of our three children find this task far harder. By far harder, they mean that the youngest girl is literally tangled in the net itself. So, sure, pigs can't do some important things that a two-year-old does, like talk. But the science suggests that they hit some of the same important milestones that human toddlers do. Meanwhile, a documentary on farm animals showed that adult pigs can even play video games. This is Hamlet. He's amazed animal psychologists by learning a computer game designed for chimpanzees. They can use their mouths and they can do a simple video task by manipulating the joystick. The scientists make it progressively harder for Hamlet, yet he succeeds every time. In order to do that, they have to have an understanding that they are manipulating this joystick, which is manipulating this cursor, in the interest of a goal. Can other animals do this? Here's Lex, a Jack Russell dog. Lex is willing, but even after a year, he hasn't quite got it and needs help. If you look up performing pigs on YouTube, you can watch them match shapes, dunk tiny basketballs, and drop coins in piggy banks. It's an incredible range of tricks. Nellie says, let's go home. She's had a hard day of eating and sleeping. Nellie the pig noses a suitcase open and jumps in. She's packed herself for her next trip. This is how we get her into motels. No, I'm just kidding. We would never put a pig in a suitcase for longer than about three seconds. Let's have a final for you! Except, of course, we do keep pigs in very, very confined spaces. And for much, much longer than three seconds. Which brings us back to our paradox. Pigs are at least as smart as dogs, and maybe even match chimps in some ways. But from their earliest days, we keep millions of them in the cramped iron cages Lori described at the top of the show. We sterilize them without anesthetic, and we cut off their tails. And they end up having a lot of psychological disturbances. The reason they cut the tails off is because other pigs will nibble on the tails of the pig in front of them because it's like a nervous habit. It's equivalent to what happens when you're banging your head against the wall if you're mentally disturbed. So they lead tortured, dirty lives. They never get to go outside. They never get to roll in the mud. They never get to raise their children or have a normal social life or even play. And so their lives from beginning to end are just pure hell. I saw a video that never left me, a video from within a slaughterhouse where these men were grabbing one pig and 
slaughtering him. And another pig came to the rescue and was trying to defend the pig who was being attacked. It showed how helpless these animals are in this circumstance, how much they understand the horror they're going through, and how much, as much as they try to fight back, they can't win. They're overpowered. Wow. Okay. This is pretty grueling. I'm looking at my producer, Bird, here, and she's like tearing up, you know, and I'm I'm also kind of getting uncharacteristically emotional about this. <laughs> well, the only reason that I'm not tearing up now is because I've had time to process it. At this point in my conversation with Lori, I was pretty convinced of two things. Pigs are at least as smart as dogs, and we treat pigs in ways that we'd never treat dogs. But I started to wonder about other animals, animals that we consider less smart. So I asked Lori this question. If pigs are as smart as you say, does that mean that I should eat fewer pigs and eat chicken instead? No. After the break, Lori's very emphatic answer explained. That guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome back. Our pop culture is literally full of stupid chickens. I think the documentarian Werner Herzog spells it out most explicitly. You have to do yourself a favor when you're out in the countryside and you see chicken. Try to look a chicken in the eye with great intensity and the intensity of stupidity that is looking back at you is just amazing. By the way, you can find these stupid chickens everywhere, from the sidekick in Moana to the paranoid bird in Chicken Little. Chickens get the short end of the stick every time. Lori Marino again. So not only do we not see chickens as intelligent, we don't even see them as birds. For example, if you've ever seen a photo of a chicken roosting in a tree, Whenever a photo like that is posted, people are just like, well, how can you, was that photoshopped or what? Chickens in trees? But yes, they're birds. <laughs> they're actually birds. It's the equivalent of dehumanization, but like de-birdification. And Lori has more than just photos of roosting chickens to prove that this de-birdification is unwarranted. She also wrote up a review paper of chicken studies a few years back. And I reviewed all the scientific literature on what we know about chickens, how intelligent are they, what kind of communication systems they have, all of that. And I was really rocked back by how sophisticated chickens are. She discovered that baby chicks can do very basic mental math. 
they can keep track of different quantities of things as they disappear behind screens. In another study, students were able to teach chickens basic tasks, like selecting one colored object out of a bunch of different options. And also, chickens have social lives. You've heard of the chicken pecking order. Yeah. It's part of their natural social life. So if you're a hen, you are going to always be looking to see where you fall on that pecking order. So what if a strange hen comes into the backyard? How do you know how to react to her? Well, if a hen observes a known dominant hen being defeated by a strange or unfamiliar hen, she's going to avoid that stranger because she knows if the known dominant hen can't beat the stranger, she certainly can't. You know, it's like when a new girl would come to school and then if she got to sit with the cool kids at their cafeteria table, I was like, hmm, I guess that means she's too cool for me to sit with her. Yes, exactly. Lori also reviewed another study showing that mother hens show elevated stress levels when bad things happen to their chicks. So they even have a maternal instinct. Basically, there is somebody home. They're not just walking around blankly, pecking at the ground, looking for food. They are thinking through their lives. And that's, that's the main take home from what we know about chickens. And yet, on factory farms... If you're a broiler chicken, you are going to be genetically manipulated to grow at a very fast pace, and your growth is going to outweigh the ability of your skeleton to hold up your body. So by the time you're just a few weeks old, you're lame. You can't stand up or walk anymore. If you're an egg-laying hen, you might be kept in a cramped cage with several other hens unable to move much. And they're always pecking at each other because of the incredible stress they're under. And so what they do is they take away their beaks. They de-beak them. The beak is the way the chicken experiences the world. She uses her beak to explore the world, to feel the world. It has the most nerve endings. And when they cut off the beak, there's no painkiller. There's evidence that the pain continues for a long time after that. Is this like cutting off my hand? Yeah, it, it would be like cutting off your hand without any anesthesia or anything. So if we're trying to make the argument that we can just switch from eating pigs to eating chickens and somehow be in a morally better place, Lori's not impressed. Chickens suffer, they feel pain, they have lives to lead just like mammals do. At this point in our conversation, I was pretty sold on the idea that pigs are thinking, feeling creatures, and that chickens are too. But that left me even more confused about the central question here. If chickens and pigs are so smart, why do we routinely treat them in ways that we would never treat a dog? It felt like even more of a paradox. Lori had several explanations. First, she told me it has to do with our own special brand of smarts. People can compartmentalize. We are able to do that so easily um, because we're smart. And that's, that intelligence, unfortunately, allows us to develop defense mechanisms that provide a way for us to do things that we know are not right, but we do them anyway because it feels good. But it's not just that it feels good. 
It's also that from the time we're little kids, we're bombarded with constant messaging about meat and family and patriotism and manliness. Yeah, it's a, it's a chicken carcass uh, in, inserted into a duck carcass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is then <laughs> shoved inside a, a turkey. turkey carcass. And bacon strips, and bacon strips, and bacon strips. We have our traditional homemade meatballs recipe from grandmother. And bacon strips, and bacon strips, then layer the chicken on top. And of course, it wouldn't be 4th of July without hamburgers and hot dogs on the grill. It's enculturation, so you're enculturated into eating meat. And finally, there's some research suggesting that humans have evolved to feel more empathy towards certain creatures. We like the creatures that kind of look like us humans. We especially like the ones with big eyes because they remind us of babies and trigger our parental instincts. In fact, one of the best predictors of whether people will donate money to save a certain species is how big that animal's eyes are. All that to say, a combination of nature and nurture is coming together to numb our empathy towards certain species, even if they're actually pretty smart. This all left me wondering, is there some notch below which the level of sentience they have is so minor that it's okay to eat them. You know, I'm thinking about fish or shrimp or mussels. You know, a lot of people will make the argument, eat down the animal scale. Uh I mean, the whole notion of an animal scale, that thing called scalinatura, is just this mythology that we have... Wait, wait, wait. What is scalinatura? Scalinatura means natural scale. And it's a philosophy of life. It's a viewpoint about life on the planet that says that all life sits on a scale or a hierarchy or a ladder. Lori says that in some ways, this ladder feels deceptively intuitive. Like maybe slugs are below frogs, frogs are below birds, and birds are below mammals. So guess who's on top? Our species. That's why it's so intuitive. It's a ladder made by humans. And when you're a human being, you're going to judge all intelligence based on human intelligence. But why should we value human intelligence over, say, octopus intelligence? Different intelligences are different. Each is adapted to its own particular environment. But one intelligence isn't necessarily better than the other. This might seem like a radical idea, but it's one that neuroscientists like Lori Marino are increasingly moving towards. And yet, the latter is still with us. It's been with us uh, since the time of Aristotle or earlier. And even today in 2020, we adhere to this notion that, you know, you can go up and down a ladder of complexity, which also tells you something about value. When I asked if maybe fish or mussels were okay to eat, I was unconsciously leaning on that ladder. But Lori thinks the ladder is a crutch we need to stop leaning on as we make our choices about what animals to eat or not eat. Of course, without the ladder... It's really difficult to draw a line because I don't think there are bright lines in nature. We're going to have to impose our own bright line and own that as we do. Maybe there is no morally objective way to distinguish between what's okay to eat and what isn't. Maybe we each just have to make a subjective choice and, as Lori says, own that. 
So if you're trying to be thoughtful about what you eat, you might think it makes sense to choose based on how sentient a species seems to you. Or you might think that any creature that's alive, just by virtue of being alive, shouldn't be killed for food when we don't actually need it for our survival. Whatever you believe on that score, there does seem to be one slightly easier line for us all to draw. We could stop torturing animals before we eat them. We could make sure their lives are more pleasure than pain while they're still alive. Meat would be more expensive, and we'd have to eat less of it. But it would go a long way towards resolving the paradox on our plates. From 8 to 9, Wilbur planned to take a nap outdoors in the sun. It seemed fitting to pair our credits today with Charlotte's Web, the classic children's book, because it's kind of an example of how we might eat animals without torturing them. Wilbur the pig is destined to become Christmas dinner, but as you'll hear, his day-to-day schedule is pretty pleasant. From 9 to 11, he planned to dig a hole or trench and possibly find something good to eat buried in the dirt. From 11 to 12, Bird Pinkerton produced and co-reported this episode, and Amy Drostowska edited it. 12 o'clock, lunchtime. Middlings, warm water, apple pairing. Jillian Weinberger is the senior producer of this show, and Jared Paul mixes it. Liliana Michelena fact-checked this episode, and Will Reed read us selections from Charlotte's Web. Lunch would be over at 1. Liz Nelson is the executive producer for Vox Podcasts. Viveka Morris from the Yale Law, Ethics, and Animals program advised us on this episode. We had recording help from Srinivas Ramamurthy, and we're grateful to Lauren Katz and to Kate Daly. From one to two, Wilbur planned to sleep. During his nap, Wilbur listened to the music in this episode, APM, Chris Zabriskie, Poddington Bear. We also had a clip from a Compassion and World Farming documentary on animal intelligence. We'll link to that in the show notes. From two to three, he planned to scratch itchy places by rubbing against the fence. This podcast is made possible thanks to support from animal charity evaluators. They research and promote the most effective ways to help animals. From three to four, he planned to stand perfectly still and think of what it was to be alive 